welcome. I'm Connor Beaton, and this is the Man Talk Show. This podcast brings together some of the best teachers, thought leaders, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is a close friend of mine, Mr. Dan Harrison. Dan Harrison is a financial therapist and business performance coach to wellness practitioners and healers. He is the co-founder of Sogo, which is a company that inspires and teaches entrepreneurs how to use their business as a force for social good. And he is also the creator of a course in Conscious Wealth, uh, where he is teaching people how to heal their relationships to money, to wealth, and empower themselves for a healthier financial future. Uh, so I had down on the show today because, uh, well, first off, he is one of the most uh, intelligent people that I know when it comes to financial mindset and wealth. Uh, and I wanted us to have a stronger grasp as we enter into 2020. You know, this podcast is coming out on December 30th, and it's one of the last days of the year. And this is a time of year where many of us take uh, a few moments, maybe a day or a few hours, to reflect on how 2020 went. Hopefully, uh, if you haven't already done so, you've had a chance to go through my year in review, my year in recap, uh, where I walk you through being able to uh, take a look at 2019 and uh, review some of the pieces that were big wins for you, that were challenges that you left on the table and start to create some aims or goals for 2020. And part of them, hopefully, uh, for you will be a stronger grasp on financial literacy and to have a more powerful financial mindset. So this is what this episode is all about. Dan and I talk about what creates uh, financial scarcity, where scarcity comes from. Uh, we talk a little bit about the concept of financial therapy and uh, not <laughs> not in a weird way, but just in the sense that we talk about uh, what financial therapy is in terms of how some of us have broken relationships with money and that we need to be able to mend those broken relationships and stories and narratives that we have internally about not being able to have enough money or not being worthy of uh, of more financial abundance and walk through what it means to be more financial, financially self-reliant. So those are just some of the topics that we talk about in this episode. Uh, towards the end of the episode, we also get into some of the nitty gritty uh, pieces of investing. And we talk a little bit about things like EFTs and index funds, uh, mutual funds, tax-free savings accounts, etc., and give you some tools to think about not only mentally, not only emotionally in terms of questioning your story about finances, uh, but some real logistics uh, and and hopefully some useful pieces for you to invest better when it comes to your finances in 2020. So just before I bring him on, a quick reminder uh, to everyone that's out there listening that we have launched the Men's Weekend for 2019 in, on the West Coast. Uh, it's over half sold out, but we would love to have you there. So if you've been thinking about joining us, definitely head on over to mantalks.com or connorbeaton.com and sign up. Uh, and then Vienna and I are going to be closing down our course soon. Um, get the love you want. It is definitely a relation co relationship course worth doing. We dive into the core and foundational pieces of a healthy, thriving relationship. Uh, we talk about the family of origin and how that creates some of our behaviors in our relationship. We talk about improving your communication style and overcoming conflict, how to set better boundaries. And of course, we take a deep dive 
into sex and intimacy and how to uh, spark some of that desire in your relationships. So whether you're single or you are in a relationship, this is definitely a course and program to check out. We have had nearly a thousand people go through it now and they absolutely love it. The people that have gone through it have gotten so much value in their relationships and in understanding themselves. So head on over and check that out. You can find it on my website or on Vienna's, again, connorbeaton.com or newyorkcouplescounseling.com. That is Vienna. Uh, So anyway, I hope that you have enjoyed your holidays. I hope you've had an amazing time with your family. And I hope that you are bringing in the new year with a renewed sense of optimism, of self-leadership, of empowerment, of clarity, of focus, and direction. And I hope that this podcast helps serve you on that mission of stepping into 2020 powerfully. So without any further delay, please welcome Mr. Dan Harrison. Yeah, thanks for having me, my friend. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited, man. It's always good to have a near and dear uh, friend on the show. For the listeners that are out there, Dan uh, has been on the show before way, way back in the day. So you'll have to go back in the archives to find Dan Harrison back there. Um, but fun fact, just so you know, uh, the quality of human being that we're about to talk to, Dan is the individual that officiated uh, my wedding with Vienna early on in April. So Dan, thanks so much for being a part of that incredibly special day. Uh, <laughs> wow. I just like got all the flashbacks to that moment there. That was such a special day. And uh, yeah, yeah, man, I'm just grateful to be on here, jam with you and just uh, for your friendship and uh, looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, man. Well, before we dive into the conversation around, you know, financial mindset and financial therapy, which I have been wanting to jam on for a while with you. Um, I want to revisit the question, and normally I don't ask my my reoccurring guests when I've had a guest on the show twice, and normally don't ask this question again, but I'm going to ask it because I think some life has happened for you in between, <laughs> and, uh, and so here we go. So tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Yeah, this is definitely a different story than the first one because something huge has happened in my life. Uh that has completely changed everything, actually. Ten months ago, I became a dad. <laughs> and um, that moment has radically transformed my entire life. And it's like lots of people have told me that everything changes when you become a dad. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But um, yeah, I did not expect. Uh, I just didn't know. And now that I'm a dad... I don't know, like my whole perspective is different. Um, Who I am has changed. Uh, Living life inside the context of her perspective of me uh, and my my little family, uh, who I am is fundamentally different. And uh, I really like who I'm becoming in the context of my family. And it is a different human. Things like, you know, I'm I'm totally sober. Um, I'm t- I've taken on like a level of responsibility that is astonishing to me, really. Uh, <laughs> it's just like I'm kind of observing myself day to day and being like, who is this guy? Um, <laughs> so, yeah. And then just being able to access uh, love, uh, like a depth of love that I have n- never had access to. 
Uh, I cry all the time, which is awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm just like present to uh, another thing, like it's uh, my little daughter. So just present to, you know, what it's like, what it will be like for her growing up in this world, what it's like for, you know, thoughts and, and awareness around raising a daughter um, in the world that we live in. And so, yeah, just like deeper questions are being asked. Um, transformation is happening on a daily basis. I am learning. I am, you know, also going through like the struggle of, of uh, trying to balance everything as well. And uh, yeah, it's just like a really cool journey. Mm, that's awesome, man. How How would you say that entering into the space of parenthood and becoming a father has has shifted your your sense of like having a mission and having a focus because i know for a lot of people uh when they have their first child sometimes they talk about having sort of like a renewed sense of purpose or it's sort of igniting this fire within them of really wanting wanting to quote unquote get their shit together like get their life together so that they can be these like providers and protectors and nurturers and caretakers for the kids and i'm curious about what your experience has been like there yeah that has very much been my experience where there's just like no it, what it feels like in my experience is there's no more time to waste uh, mm. time goes by very very quickly and uh she's already 10 months <laughs> and um i think before i would let 10 months slip by with you know without ever even thinking about it um so I'm present to time and yeah, I want to be the kind of dad that she's proud of. So, yeah. so to me, that's like, um, having a mission is important and, and being somebody that she looks up to and yeah, somebody that I look up to as well. And so for me, there's just been like a, a level of clarity around who I want to serve, who I want to work with, uh, what my life is about, which is you know, the things that are big parts of my life right now is uh, doing men's work. Um, that's become a, you know, a pretty big staple in my life. Uh, and then I'm a co-founder of SOGO, which is, stands for social good. And that's helping entrepreneurs and small businesses infuse doing, like using their business as a force for social good and giving back to communities. And so, mm. um, we have, I've been doing that for two years and we run quarterly events and, uh, you know, bring together 150 entrepreneurs and, um, that's really inspiring. And, uh, and then working with like the healers and the health practitioners and the, and coaches and people who are like really transforming other people's lives, uh, as a business coach, I just want to support them. Uh, so that they can heal more people and so that we can collectively live in a more, you know, healthy, um, connected and free world. Uh, and I want to do my part by supporting them. So it, it's just like, there's a level of clarity that just wasn't there before. Yeah. I honestly, it's like, I don't know, all the personal development stuff that I did, uh, pre child, uh, I feel like, I don't know, I sh maybe I should have just had kids earlier. You know, I, <laughs> um, that's, that's funny. I don't know a lot of people that say that. <laughs> it was just like a, it's like a fast track to uh, being the kind of human that I've been aspiring to be.
Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. Well, I mean, I definitely have noticed from the outside that your sense of clarity, your sense of purpose has really come into into place. And I know for I know for a lot of people that's the case when they have children or, you know, like when they get married or um, they just have these sort of like big life events happen where it sort of puts puts things into perspective. And, and far too often we sort of glaze over or rush past those experiences of, you know, what does it mean for me to now be a husband, to now be a father, to now step into this next chapter of, of my life. And we can so easily not take that time to curate intentionally the type of human being that we want to be moving forward. And we bring our old self into that space. And, and it's in the allow for the growth and the change that, that life is often calling us to make. And I know for me, you know, stepping into this space of being married and, and, uh, you know, taking this, taking the relationship with Vienna into that space was incredibly powerful for me. And it radically changed the way that, that I show up in other relationships. I show up in my business and I show up for my clients and, and myself. And, uh, it's been an incredible transition. So I'm, I'm glad to hear, you know, the impact that becoming a father has had on you. Um, let's shift a little bit. I think one of the big things that I love that you talk about is financial mindset. And, you know, over the past little while, I've noticed that you've shifted into this space about talking about financial therapy, which when I first saw you post about it, I was like, oh, shit, that's that's a really cool concept. You know, this idea of helping individuals heal their relationship with money, um, because many of us have really messed up, <laughs> messed up relationships to money. And we could definitely use some work and healing around our mindset and our relationship to it. So maybe, maybe just unpack the idea of financial therapy. And, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about becoming financially reliant uh, here in a minute, but let's start with financial therapy. I love this topic and it, it, uh, stems from, I mean, so I, my background, I was a certified financial planner for, you know, 14 years and I've sat across the table from thousands of clients by now. And at the end of the day, um, as a financial planner, you're kind of tweaking numbers, you're tweaking investment performance or, um, you know, consolidating debt and stuff like that. But, after sitting with so many people, I realized like, and seeing so many different financial situations and looking at what's the difference between the people who are, you know, successful around with their money and ones who struggle is it's like, it's the behaviors. It's not the, it, that's 80% of the financial difference comes down to behaviors. And so I actually sold my financial planning practice to step into this more full time and, and be able to work with uh, clients on their, uh, the mindset, mindset oh, sometimes seems like surface level. Cause it's like, it's deeper than that. Um, so financial therapy is a relatively new term. It it's, there's not necessarily like a school or an association of it, but the, the idea or the premise is looking at the emotional, uh, and behavioral aspects of, a human and how they relate that to their finances and um, taking a trauma informed lens or approach to people's finances and the way that they um, yeah, invest or spend or save 
and trying to work it backwards to like, why? Like, why do you have those sets of behaviors? And do they serve you or do they not? And and when you go back far enough, um, it's like healing your past traumas around money. I mean, that might be a strong word, but it's just like your past experiences with money. And a lot of this for me, like it stems from me just doing my own work. I, my finances were so shit for so long. I say that on this podcast. Um, yeah, absolutely. Okay. It was absolute shit. Like my finances were a joke. And, um, and it was only working with uh, other coaches and mentors. Uh, and the biggest swings in my own situation happened when uh, I explored you know, my beliefs and my values and my programming from my childhood, that's really, and gaining that level of awareness then allowed me to do better and change my behavior. And so um, after having done that for myself and then having really great results, uh, I now do that with my clients. And that really moves the needle a lot more than, you know, consolidating your loan. It's like a Band-Aid. Uh, mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I think one of my, one of my favorite quotes around like money and finances is actually from Jonathan Swift. And he says a wise, a wise person should have money in their head, but not in their heart. Mm. And I think the concept of that has always been profound for me because the essence of it is that, you know, we shouldn't really attach love to money, right? Mm. It's that money is more of a, of a tool for us or a vehicle for us in some ways to sort of buy back the the time that we want, the freedom of time so that we can, you know, do the the things we want, the the creativity, the spending time with the people that we love, et cetera. And I think one of the one of the cool things about, you know, approaching healing our relationship to money through the lens of like financial therapy and, and becoming financially reliant that's so powerful is that it in some ways is about understanding you know, what limitations, what blocks we have, what fears we have. And I've noticed the more work that I've done on my financial fears and my financial insecurities, the more that I have, I get, actually get clarity on other parts of my life, yes. you know, like how I want to spend my free time. Because I think sometimes we can get lost in this catch 22 of, you know, people are wanting to get more money to have more time, but they don't know what they would do with that time. Right. You know, they've never actually bothered to map that out. And I think one of the biggest reasons that I wanted to have you on the show, you know, at this time is because most people are entering into 2020 and there's lots of these like goals and ideas that they have about, you know, uh, whatever it is, maybe they're buying a new home, maybe they are saving up for their kids college, maybe they are getting married this year or uh, you know, they're, they're wanting extra funds so that they can go to the gym more often or whatever that it is. And usually money is a barrier for people. And so can you speak a little bit to what it means to be financially reliant, just as sort of like a definition, and then we can talk about what blocks that? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. There's a, a few thoughts that come up. Like one of them is, so, so money is uh, a gateway to self-exploration, like it can be. So you could look at a budget and just see a bunch of numbers. Or you can see, you can look at a budget and you can, like when I look at a budget, I get access into the behavior and I get, I can see into people um, through their money, which is a, a really interesting um, tool that I can use to 
speak to different parts of the humans that I work with. So yeah, so money is like a tool for self-exploration if you know how to set yourself up or put the right frameworks in place. But the reason that that's important is because when you look at the kind of intergenerational programming that happens, you know, like welfare recipients are like eighth, ninth generation welfare recipients, right? It, it's like we, we get our programming from our parents. Um, that's insane, by the way. I did it, not know that. Yeah. And so it's just I mean, like... Right. I was just going to say, like, it, it makes complete sense, right? Because like even people that, uh, you know, people that inherit money, like that gets passed down generation by generation. And it's so like, not only the programming from money, but often our financial situations that we're, that we're, that we're born into, you know, mm -hmm. that come from our family. So that's totally wow. So like, so it, in order to like, create a different result than your um, parents, then this is the work that there is to do. You know, I think for, for a lot of people, it's like you can you can see that you would probably go into similar lines in financial results um, as your that your parents get. And so. So, yeah. And and what it is, is just like unpacking uh, what must have been the beliefs of my parents that I now have that I carry with me. And does that belief serve me? And and so to speak to your other point about. Okay, it's the new year. We're setting new goals. Um, often, financial goals uh, are, you know, front of mind for people in the new year, which is great. I love this this time of year. But if you just set a goal without doing the internal work, chances are low that you'll achieve that goal. And so, or you might, but it, it will be. How did you say it? It's like. People are just focused on getting the money, but they don't know what they would do with the extra time that they have. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, I lost my train of thought there. That's okay. That's yeah. all good. I mean, I think, I think you landed the plane on, on, you know, what that point was about being able to uncover what the narratives were from our family. Like I remember, uh, when I started to do this work about understanding my own relationship with money and finances, um, one of the main questions that I got asked, and it may have actually been you or like an exercise that we were doing together like years and years and years ago. Uh, but the, the question was something along the lines of like, what's one of the first or earliest memories that you have yeah. about money or from, from your parents specifically? And I remember getting my first credit card and my mom worked for a bank. And after having that credit card for a few months, uh, I couldn't seem to pay the damn thing off. And it only have a $500 limit, but I was like 16 years old, right? And I could never pay, pay it down. And I went back to my mom and I said, you know, I can't seem to pay this off. Like, what's the secret to credit cards? Like, what am I doing wrong? And, I'll, and I, never, I never forget, she said, well, don't worry about it. That's just a part of life. And mm. in that moment, I was like, oh, you know, my mom works for a bank. She's the parent. She knows more about money than I do. So debt must be normal. And so I did, I never questioned that belief, you know, that I got from my, from my parent. And for years, I just had debt there, you know, on my credit card, writing on my credit card for a really long time until finally I challenged that narrative and started to move through it. So what do you recommend people start to look at? Like, how can they start to challenge some of these perspectives that they've acquired from their family? And, and how do they even know where to begin? 
Yeah. So in terms of like a place to start to explore what, you know, our own beliefs are, is uh, the exercise that I use is, is more just like free flow writing, like stream of consciousness writing. And because the reality is like you, we don't know these, these things get stored in the subconscious mind and they're just there. Like for me, uh, you know, my parents divorced when I was six and uh, my dad, you know, put me on his lap and uh, really emotionally charged moment uh, my dad was leaving and he said uh, you know son I'm going and I'm leaving for work and I'm going to be able to make more money and so I'll see you you know more and we'll be able to do more fun things and that wasn't true uh, but that was you know and then he left and my little six-year-old brain made that mean that in order for like my family is breaking up and the reason is because we don't have enough money. And so, and then that just got stored into my, my subconscious mind and sat there for years and unconsciously wreaked havoc in my relationships and my finances, because I believe that in order to get love, in order to have a family, uh, to be connected, which are the things that I really want, uh, I had to have a lot of money. And and so it wasn't until I became aware of this kind of unconscious belief that I could start work, working on it and creating new beliefs that were more in alignment with the life that I wanted to have. And so, yeah, in terms of a place to start, just like creating some space to write out your money story and just let it all come out onto onto paper. Do it like hand to paper, not on your computer. Something about that that, I don't know, um, is maybe spiritual or like part of, I don't know. For me, it works better when it's just like written. And let it go. What's your earliest memory of money? What, What are the, you know, what are your first three memories of money? And go with those and just see what comes out. And then you can start to write out, you know, what else is your story with money? In your teens, what happened? When did you buy your first car? Um, You know, your first credit card. Why did you go into debt? And you just start crafting this, this story. And then once it's all written, you realize that it's just a story. And it's just a narrative. And that you can actually choose to create a new one. Yeah, and so that's kind of the process of of rewriting or rewiring that money blueprint and money narrative. Mm, I love that, man. I love just being able to like dig into what the actual story is and and kind of going through it chronologically to understand how that story was created. Because I think you know one of one of the things that I've learned from consuming a lot of Alan Watts is that we we can't change something that we don't understand, right? And so until we bring awareness to the to the program, to the story, to the narrative that's already running underneath the surface, there's not much that we can do. And you know, I think sometimes we understand that we have a limit like a limitation or a limiting belief around money, but we might not know the story that's put that in place. So it's almost like writing the origin story to your scarcity. Um, 
But I'm curious from your perspective, you know, you've sat down with hundreds and thousands of people over the years and you've talked about money. What are some of the common scarcity themes or scarcity narratives that people have? Oh, it's just that there's never enough. Uh, (laughs) Like, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, that one's simple. (laughs) uh, and, And it's so funny because everybody has it, like to different degrees, or not everybody, but just. There's there's a that's kind of the underlying root, right? There's just like not enough. And what happens is you make more money and then your lifestyle changes and then you realize like, oh, well, there's still not enough. <laughs> right. Like, uh, because you have bigger goals or or things get more expensive. And, you know, I think it stems from us not feeling like we're ever enough, like as a, like, I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm like, there, those are these kind of self beliefs or, or that I, that I hear, um, in my own head and, and the heads that of, uh, my clients, but yeah, financially the, the scarcity can be said in different ways, but it comes up with, you know, I, there's not enough. And so, you know, how do you uh, address that or, or, and I don't know if I have all the answers, like a, like a wide reaching, like this is the answer. I don't know. But what's worked for me is uh, developing a practice of generosity and gratitude is my way of, of uh, counterbalancing the, I, I don't have enough or there's not enough. And it's weird. There's just like a way of thinking that and being like when you're being grateful and you're being generous, that creates a space for life to respond to you differently. That makes sense. And so when you are being grateful and you're being generous, uh, it's so interesting. It's like people start to pour into you. People start to help you. Opportunities open up. It's one of the reasons why, like with Sogo, what I do uh, around helping businesses to give back and to be generous is because it's not just like a, like an altruistic, we should all be doing good. It's actually good for the bottom line uh, of your business because it creates opportunity. And you realize that you know, when you're sitting in a space of like, there's not enough, and I might, you know, I don't have enough, then you're often in this kind of isolated spot. I know for me, when I was struggling with a bunch of debt, and that was the ongoing chorus in my head, I'm never going to get out of debt. There's, there's just not enough. I don't know how to make enough. I was so alone. Uh, I was doing it all on my own. And it wasn't until I kind of opened up and I started sharing with people about like what my situation was. And I I was really grateful to meet a mentor who taught me. I was immersed in his culture for four years. That was all about philanthropy and giving and generosity. And that was the paradigm shift I needed to really just see the world differently, see finances differently. And um, the most common belief is uh, there's not enough. I don't have enough. And the way to one of the ways to counterbalance that is to develop a practice of gratitude and generosity. And um, one last thing that I'll speak about that, because gratitude and generosity might sound like it's almost, I mean, it's truly, truly powerful. And um, it's like a little less practical. And uh, I think a lot of the work that I do is like balancing the, here's the practical and the like ethereal. Um, And uh, 
And so people will often come to me and they have a cash flow problem. Like there's just not enough cash flow. There's more money going out than there is going, uh, than there is coming in. And it's never a cash flow problem. It's a creativity problem. <laughs> and so when people can develop um, uh, like creative thinking, creative problem solving, that makes such a difference in your business and in your ability to create income. And so, uh, yeah, in terms of having an alternate approach to the scarcity mentality, the I'm not enough, it's like those three ways of being creative, generous, and um, grateful is like, yeah, you just, that's where kind of in alignment with abundance. Mm, yeah, because it's almost like shifting that relationship from I don't have enough or I don't deserve more or that like scarcity mindset talk into I am in abundance. I think uh, I think I think Robert Kiyosaki, who is the author of like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, says something like it's not how much money you make, but how much money you keep mm -hmm. and how hard it works for you. And I think that's really at the essence of what you're saying is that like, it's not how much money you make necessarily while we all would like to, to make more money and to earn more money. It's actually about becoming creative and responsible with how much money we're keeping and then how hard it's working for you. Yeah, is that totally. I mean, uh, I know people who are incredibly wealthy, but their net worth is, is horrible. <laughs> you know, you, you start to, mm. I remember one of the very first clients that I ever went to go see, you know, I was a young financial advisor sitting in my suit and pull up to this house and it's, you know, it's a big house, nice cars in the front yard, pool in the back. Um, you know, I'm thinking I'm walking into a great new client and sit down at the kitchen table and we start peeling back the onion. And my financial plan for them was to go bankrupt while they still could recover before retirement. <laughs> because <laughs> Whoa. because they had uh it was like like hundreds of thousands of dollars in credit card debt and it was all just an illusion and that's where one of the first times i realized wow the truth is rarely in the appearance of things it's so powerful man so so powerful and and so true and i think oftentimes we don't take that into consideration, right? Like we look at other people's financial situation. I think like somebody like, <laughs> I'm going to throw shade here, but I think somebody like Ty Lopez is a perfect example of that, right? He's like your classic marketing dude that is constantly putting out those like mm -hmm. shitty Facebook ads or ads on YouTube where it's like, he's like, hey, look at all the books that are behind me, right. but also my Ferrari. <laughs> and you're like, cool. And then he like walks through his mansion. He's like, look at the mansion that I'm renting. And like, oh, by the way, here's the beautiful women. And it's like, oh yeah, okay, cool. Um, but, but what he's doing is playing off of people's idea of what a rich, a quote unquote rich or abundant life looks like, right? And so for you, when you start to work with people and, you know, whether, whether it was in your, uh, you know, financial capacity, when you were working with people to sort of like save for retirement and those types of pieces, or when it's in the work that you're doing now from like a financial, like a financially therapeutic aspect, how do you, how do you actually have people start to not, not save, but rewire the mindset so that they can have their money work for them better? Like, do you get them to open up a savings account and, you know, put aside a certain amount a month or like, what do some of those components look like? Yeah. Well, and, and you mentioned it earlier um, around 
financial self-reliance, right? Like, what does that mean? And uh, Mm -hmm. that's kind of what's in my mind when I'm working with people. And so where that starts is recognizing the fact that not everybody is Ty Lopez. And Ty Lopez, that there's nothing wrong with having the Ferraris and the mansions. If that's really what you're like, your purposes or your goal is, or your, um, I think what rubs us the wrong way is when it's just like, you know, pushed on us, like, oh, look how great I am. Like, it's kind of arrogant and just like, come on, man, there's better ways to market your stuff. Um, but uh, the fact is, like, it's getting clear on the individual's purpose and like bigger reasons for being here and what a rich life is to them. What a rich life is to me is going to be different than you and going to be different for everybody. But a lot of people have just adopted what they think a rich life is. And so a lot of people have goals, but they're not even their own goals. They're just like goals that they think they should have. And so, yeah, I think, I mean, I think, yeah. I was just going to pause you there because I think that's actually a really good point is that a lot of people have financial goals based on, again, going back to what we were talking about before, based on what their parents have told them are important, based on what the culture or society around them values. And so, you know, if if we've never really questioned those things on our own, how do people start to come into contact with or understand what they really value financially and and what they really want money to do for them? Like, do you have some questions that maybe people should ponder? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's kind of like the way, this is how I look at it. Okay. Money, money is just a game. Okay. It's just a game. And most people are playing this game without knowing any of the rules (laughs) because they don't teach it anywhere. You have to actually actively go out on your own and learn the rules. And most of the rules are actually locked up in a in a really boring tax code for the country that you live in. That's what the actual rule book is. Um, and you know, and you don't have to learn all the rules. You just need to learn a few of them so you can play the game better. But if money is a game, probably the one rule that you should know is how do you win this freaking game? Like if if you're playing a game, how do you win? And the the moment that you win the game of money is when you can stop trading your time for it. And when you can stop trading your time doing things that you don't necessarily want to do. And so there's different ways to win the game. Like the way that I win the game might be different than the way that you win the game. In traditional sense, the way that you win is like when you can retire, you get a pension or you get, uh, you've saved up enough money in your investments and that creates a passive income. But what's really cool is that now we live in a time where like our parents could never have imagined the number of different ways that we could have created passive income, that we can create like the ways that we can create passive income now was just like not available to parents. And so old school financial advice is like, it needs to catch up with the times because there's just like different ways to do it. And so when it comes to like, what are your, what are your goals or it, it comes back to time, right? Like your most precious commodity is time. That's why you win the game when you have control over your time. And so the question is more like, how much money do you need coming in every month to live life on your terms and do the things that you want to do? And 
you can they and you can start working with that. And and so sometimes when I'll ask people, you know, like what are your income goals? I might say like, oh, a million bucks or you know, 250,000 a year or something, but it's not based on anything. So it's just like getting clear on like, how much money do you actually need to live the life that you want uh, if it was coming in passively? And so when I'm working with a client, what that looks like is getting really clear on how much income do they want to have coming in every month? How much money do they need every month to live life on their terms, to do what it is that they actually want, pay for all their bills and, and um, yeah, just live life on their terms. And and then from that space, you can start to figure out you're, you're thinking about a lifestyle and then you're thinking about how much does that lifestyle cost? And then you're trying to figure out how do you create that lifestyle with passive income? So that's, that's kind of the process that I would work through with with a client. Yeah, just like goals and and financially specific goals. Um, the first thing you got to do is you got to get clear on like what are yours like and why are, why are those important? Because finances, there's like your whole internal being, your core values, your your belief systems, um, like your money. Life goes best when your money is aligned with those. And so, um, so yeah, so it's like, you got to get clear on like, what's the purpose? What's your, what's your vision? What's your mission? And, uh, and then working backwards from there and making your money support that. Very cool. Very cool. I love that. Well, I think, you know, interestingly enough, we're having this conversation today. Uh, I was watching the Patriot Act the other day with, uh, Hassan Minaj and he was talking about savings and retirement and one of the one of the interesting things that he was talking about was that the millennial generation is on track to save less money than their parents and it's going to be the first generation that not only on average earns less but also saves less and he shared some pretty wild stats on there one of them being that like a quarter of americans have no retirement savings whatsoever and i actually thought that was kind of shocking and so from your from your perspective, having worked with a lot of people, how important is saving, and how do we start to do that on like a a micro level? Like, what's what smart savings look like? Because I think for some people, I know for myself, when I first started looking at saving, it it seemed like this big thing. Like, I felt like if I couldn't put large sums of money away, then I didn't see the point of setting up like the monthly saving plan. So, how do you how do you suggest people start to go about that? I think before you can get to savings, I would, I kind of encourage people to focus on how do you earn more? Because you know what? Like it's expensive now. Uh, rent's expensive. Uh, we are just like you said, we are millennials are earning less. Rents are going up and there's just, I get it. Like there's often not an, uh, enough money to go around uh, until you learn how to make more money. Uh, and so that's like the first thing that I kind of encourage people to do is developing an entrepreneurial mindset and thinking about how to solve problems and how to help more people. Like we get paid more money when we can help people solve problems. And so that's the first thing because it, it it's really hard for somebody to start saving money and to tell them like, oh yeah, just put a little bit away when, you know, they've got a bunch of debt or it's actually having a, a an inverse effect, right? Like I'm saving money, but I can't make my car payment. Um, <laughs> so 
So uh, I think before you get into savings, there's there's kind of there's almost three steps to it, right? There's you got to get your look at your past, look at your money story, write that, figure that out and create a new one. Then the next part is like developing the entrepreneurial spirit and figuring out how to add extra income to your household and to to your bottom line so that you have enough money to then invest. And investing is really key, but it's such a long-term strategy, right? The, the people who win at investing are the ones who can put a little bit away and, and start to you know, develop that habit and look at the trees that grow. I mean, they don't just grow quick. It takes like 30 years and, and then they become these big trees. And that's the same way that money works. It starts with a little seed. And, uh, and I get that, especially for, I think like the millennial generation, like the now, like YOLO and FOMO, I don't even know, but it, like a long, <laughs> all the acronyms, yeah, all the acronyms. Long-term planning, honestly, like a big part of what I do is literally just taking people out of their own their own perspective for a short period of time and getting them to zoom way out and just be like, "Look, life is long. It's a long life. It's a it, it's a you've got a lot of time, and you just got to zoom way out from your own perspective. And once you can see from uh, from that higher perspective." You, you can take different actions, but you also like understand why you might just start with 25 bucks. It's like mm-hmm. that habit is like, it serves a purpose and it's to, to grow your assets um, so that you don't end up in a spot where I, I see so many people when I worked with um, investors group, you know, I worked primarily with baby boomers and people going into retirement. And it is shocking how little money there is, how little money a lot of retiring people have. And and uh, a lot of people actually don't retire now. You know, they just keep working. Yeah, a, lot of, a lot of people are, are sort of like forced into, you know, doing like these jobs later on in life just to, just to survive and get by. And I think, you know, I think part of the challenge is that you know, it almost is that that YOLO mentality in a in a way, right? It's like, well, you only live once, so like, don't worry about it, or like, only live only live for the now. You know, I think that one's another saying, and I used to love that saying. You know, actually, used to love that idea. My bank account and my savings absolutely fucking hated it, but <laughs> but I love that idea, right? I was like, yeah, live for the moment, live in the moment, and there was no future plan, you know, and. Uh, and that wasn't workable for the type of lifestyle because that was very contrary to the type of lifestyle that that I knew that I wanted. And I think one of the one of the big shifts for me was starting to look into the future and deciding, okay, what what do I actually want life to look like next year? You know, is there a place that I want to travel? Is there you know an experience that I want to have that I know will enrich my life? And I think that's what's so important is like. I used to get caught up and, I, and I'm I'm only saying this because I think this might resonate with some of the listeners out there. But like I used to get caught up in the logistics of how to save and, uh, you know, and like the logistics of investing. And that would distract me from the actual story and narrative behind that that was actually running the background that was sabotaging the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And and it also distracted me from understanding the lifestyle that I wanted to create 
that would create the inspiration for me saving in the first place. And I think once I started to get in touch with that sense of like, here's some of the lifestyle that I want to create, some of the places that I want to travel and really like envisioning myself being in a place financially uh, where I was responsible enough to go and do that, everything else started to fall into place. And I think that's kind of what you're saying in an essence is like, you know, that might not be the case for everyone, but for a lot of people I've noticed is that getting in touch with this narrative and this story and understanding and sort of rewriting it is one of the most important things that we can do. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious, just out of like a, a purely like selfish place where I want to know this, do you, after working with all these people that, you know, are in the boomer era and, you know, Gen X and Gen Z and millennials, do you see a generational gap between how people think about money and what their money mindset is? Yeah, 100%. It's really interesting because a lot of um a lot of millennials are like they experience their parents go through the 2008 crash, right? And so for millennials there's a lot of distrust amongst banks and institutions and the industry itself, which is really just uh and then that that impacts the way that uh, millennials will invest and and there is depending on where somebody's at in their life cycle uh really determines like the the different type of investor that they would be um you know for example people going into retirement are are a lot more conservative uh and and millennials they've got time but Millennials have this distrust amongst or, or like towards the financial institutions and and have seen their parents just like their retirements get depleted. And so there's a lot of confusion. And that's really there's like a lot of questions on like, well, who do I go to? Who do I trust? Who can I get actual just legitimate information from if I don't trust the banks and and you know advisors and you know, Tony Robbins came up with a, a great book a few years ago as Money Master the Game, and he kind of blew the whistle on the whole industry. And, you know, people have a right, like are, are right to be skeptical of, of the industry because it's shocking at all the different ways that um, people are taken advantage of. And one of the easiest ones to identify, there are trillions of dollars sitting in mutual funds right now that underperform the index itself. And basically, the mutual fund industry has become, uh, as Tony Robbins would say, it, it's like one of the largest, like the world's largest skimming operation. So trillions of dollars and banks and institutions just you know skim 2 3% off the top every year and people don't even know so yeah so there's kind of like there's this call for uh transparency there's this call for like more trust and um yeah and so the industry itself is going under a a, a transformation right now like i said i i've kind of stepped out of the traditional role as a financial advisor to be more a financial therapist and just give people like the straight goods, like not from a space of like, I've got to sell something. That's the problem with most advisors is they're, they're, they are 
responsible or they're, they have shareholders. And so there's a fundamental um, misalignment in terms of the advice that they give, because at the end of the day, they're responsible to the shareholders of the bank and institutions, not the client. Like they're, they're responsible to be profitable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate you bringing that up because I think that is the, that's the sensation that a lot of people get in the, in the sense that like, they're not too sure where to invest their money. They're not too sure where to put their money. And there is a lot of, you know, because most people don't learn shit about mm-hmm. finances or money or investing or even how to do basic things like file their taxes. I mean, I graduated university having not learned how to do my taxes, you know, mm-hmm. and that seems like a bit of an atrocity. But then when you realize that the people who really are in control of most of the money are the ones who are also controlling legislation around tax bills mm-hmm. and how taxes are are done and uh, you know, where money gets invested, you, you realize that, of, of course, they don't want you to know that. <laughs> yeah. Because if you did, you'd realize like, oh, shit, most of these tax regulations actually benefit a very, very small, few, minute group of people. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, anyway, that's, uh, that sounds very anti-establishment, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> but I think to just come back around, like, where where do people start? You know, I think there is this sort of money, not revolution happening, but I think that there are a lot of people starting to question where their money's going, what their money is being invested into. I think more than ever before, millennials are driving this conversation of not only having companies be held accountable to uh, environmental and sustainability conversations, but also transparency about where money is getting invested. And so as someone that's been in this industry for a long time, where where do you feel like are good places for people to start to invest their money? Yeah, yeah. I, I just got one more anti-establishment comment. Yeah, right <laughs> yeah <definitely. laughs> please. Uh, uh, but just like just to put some numbers to it, right? That I I love. I'm such a nerd with numbers, but numbers just offer perspective. So. The average um, North American or, or Canadian, I think, it's uh, 42.7% of their income when you it goes to different kinds of taxes. When you add up income tax, uh, you know, carbon tax, property taxes, sales taxes, 42.7%. I'm not talking about the people making over 150 grand a year. I'm talking about like everyday people. Um, so that that's that's a shocking number. But then on top of that, more than 30% is the average amount that is going towards banks and, and, uh, and debt payments. So the average Canadian, 72% of their money is going to government and banks, and then they have to live off of the rest. So it, it's like, it is a modern day serfdom um, when you start to like look at it through a different lens. But that's not to say like that's only part of the the conversation. The next part is, okay, great. What are you going to do about it? Because once you learn the rules, like being an entrepreneur, you can actually learn how to l- drastically lower your tax bill, right? Um, and you start to see that actually the the government and taxes are just trying to incentivize certain behavior. And, um, and so that's why, yeah, there's just like a, a lot of benefit to learning just a few of the rules. And uh, it's why I'm a big just supporter of entrepreneurship as a great way to develop financial self-reliance. And so, so yeah, so, but to speak to your point about 
you know, the mistrust in the industry and what do you do or how do you learn or what, you know, what do you invest in? Um, so really simply, it's like invest in uh, yourself first, invest in like um, the, the asset that you have between your ears is, you know, that's going to pay the biggest dividends. So learn developing a skill, developing, like investing in yourself. Um, and then next, when you're talking about like long-term investment options, ETFs and index funds, and just to put that into something tangible, it's like, instead of investing with a bank or an institution where you pay two to 3% in fees, there is a Vanguard fund that is uh, essentially an asset allocation fund. You only need to make one purchase. You're totally diversified uh, globally um, in different, but uh, based on your risk. Uh, and the fee for that is 0.2%. So it might sound like yeah, such that's, a- That's pretty good. Yeah. And, and it automatically rebalances and, and like you don't have to do anything. And as a long-term investment strategy, it's index fund. That fund is going to outperform ninety percent of the mutual funds anyway. So you're pay, you're saving two percent every year, and somebody who's got a hundred grand in investments, that's two grand every year over the course of thirty years. It's literally hundreds of thousands of dollars, and so that's what the banks and institutions aren't telling people. And um, yeah, and and because it's. I mean, they want to make a profit and, and that's why I'm kind of left, you know, to, to educate people instead of selling them things. What is it about index funds and, and ETF funds that are more secure and, and, and safer? Because this is something that I learned in the last few years. Like I, I mean, admittedly, I didn't even know what an ETF or index fund was, but when I started looking at what to do with some of my, my personal income, that was one of the things that I think one of the things that you and I had actually talked about. And so what, like what constitutes an ETF or an index fund and why are they different from something like a mutual fund? Yeah, really simply, I mean, start getting into some technical stuff here. We talked about taxes and ETF funds and <laughs> stuff. Listeners tuning in. Uh, <laughs> just, um, but the, but the, 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 premise behind it is mutual funds with fund managers are trying to outperform the market. And an index fund or an ETF is like investing in the entire market. So instead of trying to pick and choose different stocks and companies that will outperform the market, uh, you just buy all of them and you buy the entire index. So like the Dow Jones is an index, the S&P 500 is an index, the NASDAQ is an index. And uh, you can just buy, instead of buying individual stocks on those indexes, you just buy the entire index. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, when you look at the historical data, you have a very diversified portfolio. So the risk is lower, but you also end up with, because of the fees not be, being very low, the index funds often, like 90% of the time, outperform mutual fund managers. And so you get the most of best, best worlds. You have low fees and you're going to perform better than a mutual fund nine times out of 10. Hmm. So yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think one of yeah. the things that, that I love about it is that, you know, something like an index fund, uh, I think you're talking about the S like an S&P index fund will have 
you know, a, a conglomerate of some of the top, you know, Fortune 20 companies in it, right? The companies like Apple and Google that are largely very stable and very growth oriented. And so it's a much, then again, this is my like layman yeah. version of understanding, yeah. but it's, it's, it's a much safer investment over a long period of time than let's say putting a large chunk of your money in one you know, one company stock or one, you know, one mutual fund. Um, how does that different differentiate? And this is the last technical question. And then I want to circle back around to like this, like an entrepreneurial mindset question before we wrap up. But how does something like that differentiate from something like an RRSP or a 401k? Well, that so the the questions that you ask when you're investing, the most important question that most people skip is why. Why am I investing? So every investment that you have should have a very specific purpose. Is it for retirement? Is it for a down payment? The next question is that everybody loves to talk about is what? So ETFs, Apple stock, cannabis, you know, Bitcoin, whatever. Um, but the question that you're referring to is actually how. And the how question is about what what vehicle will your investments be inside? And that speaks to, there are different tax benefits depending on like which vehicle you use, an RSP, a 401k, a Roth account, or um, I'm Canadian, so we have tax-free savings accounts. They're, they're kind of similar, but the, the point is that there will be different tax benefits to using those different kind of accounts. And what you have to understand is like the government creates these tax benefits because they're trying to incentivize a certain behavior. They want you to save for retirement so you don't end up on welfare and they end up paying for your retirement. <laughs> you know, so so it's just like, yeah, that's what those those vehicles are. Does that make sense? Interesting. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. I you know I, I think that's just important because uh, you know, not everyone might know what the differences are. And while it's a technical question, I think it's probably important so that, you know, when they are maybe sitting down with a financial advisor or, you know, they're, they're, uh, you know, working with you and going through some of this stuff that they have, they have that baseline. And so, um, all right, well, we, you know, we're going to wrap up here soon, but I, I did want to just talk about this concept of an entrepreneurial mindset and how that ties into us being able to, uh, you know, earn, earn better, earn more, you know, look for these opportunities, but also to save. And I know this is a big part of what you talk about in, in your program. And so maybe just give us a little bit of a context for like why that entrepreneurial mindset is so important. And yeah, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, this is the, I really, this is the juice of, um, you know, the, the technical elements of investing. Uh, I think, like it can be that simple. You buy one index fund. That's a, you know, a great strategy. The the part that people get hung up on is then they're like uncertain or there's fear involved and they don't know who to turn to, tr to, to trust. And so that's a, a different kind of conversation, but investing doesn't need to be that complicated. Your story around money needs to be looked at and addressed. Um, at and then realign, like the narrative that you have going on inside your head can be changed. And, and that is important for just kind of like being able to 
being more in control of your behavior, but the entrepreneurial mindset and the, the, um, the ability to see problems and solve problems is, is so invaluable. And, and by developing a perspective that allows you to understand, uh, and see opportunity is, Honestly, like that's how you become financially self-reliant. You could have, I could have no money whatsoever, but I would have very low stress because I know that tomorrow I could go out into the world and I could talk to a certain group of people and I could try and understand what their problems are and try to help them solve them. And if I can do that, they will pay me large amounts of money to do that for them (laughs) or small amounts or, I mean, but and that's just a very different perspective than I'm going to go to work, punch my my time clock and get a paycheck. And so, yeah, being able to step into entrepreneurship, there are so many benefits. There are tax benefits. There are um, just like the ability to have freedom of time and to make a big impact in people's lives is I just really... It, not only that, so those are three benefits, but the thing that really gets me jacked up about entrepreneurship is it's like you're signing up for a journey of enlightenment because as an entrepreneur, you have to go up against yourself every day. You have to look, you grow, you learn, you have to face rejection, you um, you know, you make mistakes. And there's something about the entrepreneurial journey that just fast tracks an evolution and a growth that I get so excited about on my own journey, but seeing my clients go through that is one of the, I love it. I just love it. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you like outlining that and, you know, giving some context and, and so much value today around, you know, the mindset, the scarcity, you know, just so many of these core pieces to financial literacy and that, that are so important. Um, I know that you have you have a program starting on January 11th that really unpacks and dives deep into all of this. And I'd love for you to just give the listeners a little bit more context into what that is and, and maybe some of the pieces that you cover. Yeah, I would love to share about it. So it is a program that I have. It, it's like the combination of the last 15 years of work put inside a six-week program. And it's called the Course in Conscious Wealth. And really what it is, is it's, it's helping people do a deep dive into the financial therapy uh, and then actually teaching people how to build business plans and, and think like an entrepreneur and develop ways to make more money and more income. And then teaching them how to build a seven-figure investment portfolio over time that ends up being like fa- you know 10 years faster than if you did it at a bank. And so... I love this program because it's it's just like I mean it's fun for me. I feel, and the the best part is pe- for me is seeing people um gain the insights into who they are and that like intangible um quality of themselves like it's just like a process of self-discovery uh inside of also getting like the practical foundational frameworks put in place yeah i just love doing that work because people come into it kind of expecting something different and then they leave 
just being like with their minds blown. So <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. So where, where can they go to learn more about you, the work that you're doing and some of the lessons that you teach and, and maybe a little bit about the course? Yeah. Dan Harrison consulting is dot uh, com is my website and Instagram handle. Same thing. Dan Harrison consulting and all the information is right on there. Of course, in conscious wealth is the program and, um, yeah, that's where I hang out mostly. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. And so glad to have you back on the show. You are obviously always, always welcome uh, on the show. And uh, thank you so much for everyone that tuned in to the show today. Definitely go check out Dan's work. He's doing some incredible stuff, uh, especially if finances are one of your main focuses for 2020 as you come into the new year. Uh, don't forget to leave a rating and review and share this podcast episode. Uh, you know, if someone in your life is looking to up their awareness and game in the financial world. Uh, and until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring in conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm-hmm.